0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spear going with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't, today is October 30th, 2014, and this is episode 1456 of the Survival Podcast. If you heard me say 1456 yesterday, that's because I, Jack, was wrong. Yes, yes, folks, I was wrong, this time on a very minor issue. I called yesterday's episode 1456, and I read the history segment from 1456. So today, we'll actually do 1456. Yesterday was 1455. And we'll read the history segment from 1455 on the episode of 1456 to fix Jack being wrong. Anyway, before I get into everything that we have to do today, and I've got a great show for you, by the way. Sam Kaufman's coming back. He's been with us a few times before. Uh, this guy has about as many skills as there are stars in the freaking sky. This guy is awesome. Uh, but his favorite part of all of those worlds, I think, really is herbal Medicine. When you talk to Sam, like this is a guy that can do anything from build a deadfall trap to, uh, to create water filtration systems uh, out of thin air, damn near. Um, you could, this is a guy you could drop off in the wilderness and he could survive with a knife and the clothes on his back for weeks. But what gets him really going and gets him really passionate is herbal medicine. And uh, so I'm bringing him on today to talk about that in a different angle than you've heard it on the show before. I think you really enjoy him. He's got some great courses, and uh, he's also got a really awesome new book that's out. And uh, you can learn more about Sam at his two websites, thehumanpath.com uh, and theherbalmedic.com. Anyway, I'll have Sam on in just a minute. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is... J.M. Bullion, you know, um, I had at one time uh, a different sponsor in the metal industry, and some things came up where I had to let them go. So I went out to find somebody in that niche instead of just taking the next person on the list. I I feel that based on what we talk about and based on my recommendations that you have silver and gold in your portfolio that – Uh, We have an option for you there as one of our sponsors. So I talked to some of the big metal houses like Monix and Atmex, and I couldn't really talk to anybody there that was, you know, a decision maker. So I ended up finding this company, Jam Bullion, that had better pricing than both of those on most of the items. And then I was able to talk to Michael, the president, directly. I knew that I could resolve issues for you guys when and if they came up, and I knew this was a great company to work with. So I brought them on board. Remember, I tell you, five to ten percent of your net worth should be in precious metals as an assurance plan. For your wealth in the uncertainty of the future. In fact, I would say for the certainty. The certainty of the future, and that certainty is based on something called inflation. It is the plan. If you ask the head of the Federal Reserve, is the plan inflation, they will look you straight in the eye and say, yes, and it's good for you. I don't necessarily think it's good for you, and I always worry about it going a little faster than they had planned because gee, they're not as good as they say they are at what they do. So I think that gold and silver is one way that you can help assure your wealth and ensure your future. Uh, check out Jam Bullion today. That's where I buy my gold and silver and where I think you should too. Next up today is westernbotanicals.com Western Botanicals is a source for everything herbal that you could ever think of in the United States. If it's legal and herbal, they have it. They have a lot of other cool things too for making your own herbal preparations. You'll hear about a lot of cool things herbal today from Sam Kaufman if you think, "Where can I get that." Well, you probably can get it at WesternBotanicals.com. They're a great supporter of the show. They have a premium membership that gives you 25% off everything that they sell. They sell that membership every day for 50 bucks. They will give it to you for free if you're a member of my support brigade. So they are a supporter of both the members' brigade and the show as a whole. By the way, Jam Bullion has discounts for you guys as well if you're ordering from them and you're a member of the support brigade. What's the members' support brigade? If you're new to the show, you may have never heard of it before. It is how you can help support my show at about $0.20 an episode. Uh, if you just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members, you can learn more about it there. I have discounts for you uh, from about 40 companies, and they are discounts on things you're probably buying anyway, everything from gardens to guns and everything in between. So your membership will pay for itself, and you help support the show. And if you're military law enforcement, Peace Corps, a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, Well, guess what? You get a discount on that membership. Just email me with the word service discount in the subject line at at com. And in about two sentences or less, tell me about your service and I'll get that discount code back to you. You do need to do that before, not after you join. With that, let us look at the year 1455, even though the episode is 1456 because I screwed up. I have three for you today. The War of the Roses, York versus Lancaster. The Gutenberg Revolution, and when is a man like a cow? And I wanted to read that one because, gee, I have some modern takes on when we're like cows like every day to our government. But the Gutenberg Revolution, to me, is the most monumentous thing uh, for this uh, history entry by Alex Shrug. So I'm going to read that one for you. You can read the other two by going to tspwiki.com and looking at the year 1455 or following the link in today's show notes. The Gutenberg Revolution. Up to this point, the Gutenberg Printing Press has been making money printing various religious documents. Apparently this was big business, but now they've taken on the Bible. The Bible is the first major book printed using the new movable type printing press. The Bible is the Vulgate Latin translation by St. Jerome. 180 copies are ready to go in the first printing. Planning began five years ago and has taken three years to produce. 48 copies of the original Gutenberg Bible will survive into the modern day. It is a thing of beauty. My take by Alex Shrugged. Most historians agree the revolution starts now. The revolution is not so much the printing of the Bible because most people don't know Latin except for clergy and the aristocracy. The revolution is the printing press itself. Many people will see the potential of the printing press because of the Bible. In 30 years, hundreds if not thousands of Gutenberg printing presses will be in cities throughout Europe, Had the printing press existed during the time of John Wycliffe 60 years earlier, the English translation of the Bible would have had massive influence on civilization. As it is, the world will change in ways these people can't imagine right now. My take on this is the Bible's one thing with the printing press. To me, the printing press, as an invention, transformed the world just with its very existence in everything that it printed and I'll explain it to you in a modern way. When I was a kid in the 1980s, and we were playing around and making hacks and stuff like that so that we could copy games on Commodores, which, by the way, eventually led to a program known as Nibbler that was formalized. But folks like me, we were we were building those things when I was a kid. Um, we were computer geeks. I mean... To, to even other kids, they're like, why oh, do you guys spend so much time jagging around with computers? Nobody really knew how to use a computer unless it was part of their job or they were a programmer or something like that. They just, you know, computers are nice, but they're not very practical. Even up into the early 90s, most Americans, unless you had to use a computer for work, weren't computer savvy at all. And then came the modern Internet. The Internet where you got a DVD in the mail from AOL and didn't even have a computer yet and didn't know what that was. But eventually you got a computer, you stuck it in there, you followed some prompts, and it went, You've got mail. Remember that? okay? And then you went online. And you saw all this amazing stuff that looked like crap, honestly, but you didn't know because you'd never seen anything before. These were the first websites. And all of a sudden you could like, oh, I'm interested in flowers of a certain kind. You type it in. There was a page that told you about it. Wait a minute. Then there was a site where you could talk about flowers or chickens or guns or prepping or whatever. And also, people were communicating with it and learning from it and exchanging information from it. And today, the country is highly computer literate when it comes to the basic functional operation of a computer. There's very few people under 60 today that you can, you know, sit down in front of a computer and they can't at least log on, check email, go to Facebook, look some stuff up, know how a search engine works. I mean, you know, there's different levels of competency, but the average person can use a computer today. And the kids coming up, oh, my God, they can do things by five that I still don't know how to do, and I'm pretty computer savvy. Uh, My little grandson's three and a half, and, boy, you hand him an iPhone or a tablet, you better pay attention, or he's he's done bought a movie, and uh, and you've paid for it, and he's figured out how to do that, even though you didn't set it up to do that. Um, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but not much. This is what happened when people were handed the Internet. It it gave you a reason to learn how to use a computer. Well, think about this. At a time when all books were handwritten, how many books do you think the average person owned? Books were expensive. I remember hearing, I think it took an average of 10 years for a monk to write a copy of the Bible to handwrite a copy, 10 years of work. Let's just take and say that that type of labor would have been considered skilled labor for the time. okay? And let's say that in adjusted numbers, that, that type of labor would be worth, in today's money, $50,000. I think that's underplaying it quite a bit. But that would mean that there's a half a million dollars of labor into a Bible in today's money. 10 years, 50000 a year, half a million dollars. And and some monks went blind, you know, in their second copy and what have you. That's what it took to make a Bible. Ten ten years of man hours. And I think those guys probably worked more than eight hours a day. What do you think? I mean, I really don't know, but I'm I'm just saying. So that meant that even a, a small book would be a cherished possession at the time. It wasn't like you could just go get books. There wasn't a bookstore you could go into and sit around and read in a chair having a coffee. So when we had a printing press or two, some books started to come out in higher frequency. But they're still like it's like when they came out with the first VCRs, right? And they were huge; they were bigger than a microwave oven is today, and only rich people could afford them. But they got better and more, and all of a sudden, everybody was making movies and sharing movies and making copies and recording TV, and all of a sudden they were everywhere. And once you get a critical mass of something like that, then all of a sudden. You could just really start cranking out stuff. That's what happened with the printing press. The printing press, I feel, gave people a reason to learn how to read. Why do you need to learn how to read if you don't own any books? What are you going to read? Now, you might write a little note to your your, your family or friends or something, but let's let's think about this. At the time, people didn't go that far. You know, unless you were on some kind of a mission or something, when you would be literate to do that, a scribe or something like that, going with a noble. I mean, people lived their lives many times never venturing more than 10 miles away. There wasn't that much need. There wasn't a modern mail system. I mean, there were messages sent back and forth, but, I mean, you couldn't just, like, lick a stamp, stick it on uh, in, in London at the time and have it end up in freaking Connecticut because nobody was going there yet. See? But that printing press changed the world. It was a technology that wasn't even understood as to how revolutionary it was at the time that it was created. And if it had been, the people in power would have completely co-opted it or destroyed it and suppressed it. Because it led to revolution after revolution after revolution. In other words, technology and knowledge are how you change the world. That's my take by Jack Spirico. With that, I'd, uh, I before I bring Sam on, I want to remind you guys about something. I'm working really hard uh, to bring out to you, as you can hear the rooster has replaced the other rooster with the background crowing, uh, to bring to you guys a, a thing called Gen Forward. And that's going to come out of the, of the back of the darkness, I guess you would say, uh, on November 10th. 2014, well actually actually I'm sorry, November 17th 2014, we moved it off a week give me another week to work on it in the background after the, the TSP event all the people coming to the TSP event will see the videos that were shot for the Kickstarter actually Indiegogo at the event, pretty amazing stuff that, that Kelly Heron was able to do down here uh, when he helped me put that stuff together, Gen forward to me is going to be a revolutionary technology like we just talked about Gen Ford will change the way families talk to each other. Gen Ford will change the way families ask questions. Gen Ford will preserve the lessons of one generation for the following and succeeding generations. Gen Ford is a revolutionary technology. It's been in my head for over 10 years. And I'm finally bringing it out. I think this is the time for it. If you want to know more, go to GenForward.com and just fill out a simple form. You name an email address. You'll be on the announcement list. There are certain things about GenForward that are being released to those on that list. One was the GenForward pledge. And you can pretty much determine everything you want to know about GenForward if you read that pledge. I pretty much spill the beans in there. I've sent it out once. I said I was going to only do it once, but I've heard from a lot of people that say I never got it. So I'm going to send it one more time. I'm going to send it tomorrow, and I'm going to send it as a PDF instead of just as an attachment, a link. And uh, hopefully that will get it through more spam boxes or whatever. So you have another chance on this. If you want to know early what GenFord is really all about here our nine-part pledge, go to genford.com, fill out a form, and you'll get it. We will not spam you, folks. Come on, guys. It's me. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest of this time, Sam Kaufman from TheHumanPath.com and TheHerbalMedic.com. Awesome guy, amazing skill set, glad to have him on the air again, and with that, hey Sam man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much Jack, thanks as always for having me out here. Hey, um, we've had you on a variety of topics, we have you on today to talk about herbal medicine mostly, you're kind of a jack of all trades in this world, but uh, before we get into the subject, can you just tell people a little bit about your background, and how you got into what you're doing now, and what you do now, kind of who, are, who is Sam, and uh, how did you end up here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am
1: a uh, – there's a lot of ways, places I can start with this, but but what people mostly recognize, uh, so I put my introdu- introduction out this way, is I'm a former Green Beret medic, Special Forces medic. I um, spent six years in – I spent 10 years, actually almost 12 years in total in the Army, uh, active duty and some in the Guard and some in, in active duty, but six of that was as a Special Forces medic. Uh prior to that, I grew up in a very plant literate and a very, you know, with uh, my parents, both former farmers and ranchers and such and grew up. My dad was a geologist. We spent a lot of time in the field. So I grew up in a lot outdoors and was learning primitive living skills at a very early age. So when I was in Special Forces, I started teaching primitive uh, skills, both military, law enforcement, and then also civilian, also on my own. And uh, really started understanding that I needed to have some sort of a, a structure to teach everything in that was that encompassed more than just primitive skills, primitive living skills, and survival in the wilderness environment. Because I had so much more to do and more, more so much more to information than was just inca- encapsulated in that. And so I started a school. I started several schools about 25 years ago. I started teaching and about seven years ago. The last and final, and hopefully the the ultimate uh, incarnation of my school is called the Human Path. And so what I was able to do is to wrap all of my information into these four areas, which were primitive engineering or off-grid engineering, how do you salvage, how do you make things out of what's not there, and, and how do you deal with you know, off-grid power, all the things that go into off-grid engineering under that topic. Uh, the, the next one is the, the hunter-gatherer, of which there's a primitive component, which you normally think of with a survival school, you know, how do you, how do you uh, you know, traps and fire and, and all the things that you do in a wilderness environment, as well as an urban component to hunter-gathering, which would be the permaculture, the growing, the learning sustainability of all the different ways that we can restore soil and grow. The Next one is the combat medic, where we learn about the body. We learn how to help the body and how to hurt the body. We learn martial arts and self-defense, and we learn herbalism and wilderness first aid. Ditch medicine. And then finally, the scout is the fourth path, which is the path of the communication of the eyes and the ears of the community, eyes and the ears of a team. This is the, this is the people that are advanced party for our groups when we go to Nicaragua and things like that, where they are the first ones in to figure out what's going on. They know the ingress and egress, the, the, what we would call the strategic security issues, land navigation is a big aspect of that, and of course, people like kind of the sexy side of that, which is sneaking around and doing LP, uh, you know, listening posts, observation posts, reconnaissance, that kind of thing as well, which we do in more of a post-disaster kind of scenario setting. But they also have a very real, real-world real world component to them. So all of that is my school, and I used to teach it all, and it was about a mile wide and about an inch deep. And now I'm able. I we have over 16 instructors, we have over 200 years of military combined military military experience and probably about the same in civilian almost uh, professional experience Covering everything from blacksmithing and tracking to you know to, to um, permaculture to uh, to wilderness medicine of course, and the first aid and uh, and herbalism uh, you know you name it there 's just all the components of those four areas I talked about are part of that, and then what i 've been able to do because of that is i 've been able to really focus on my love, which is herbal medicine so for the past twenty five years i 've been trying to combine ditch medicine field medicine the way I learned it, the way I used it as both for a team as well as you know thousands of hours and emergency rooms and and troop medical clinics and all of that, combining that with the practical aspects of how we can do that with nothing more than herbal medicine. And I've been very successful doing that. I've found that the answer is you can. It's not a one-for-one, tit-for-tat, you know, you use this, now you're going to use that type of approach at all. You have to change your way of thinking, but it can be done and it can be done very well. There are certain things that herbal medicines do better than pharmaceuticals. There are certain things they don't do nearly as well as pharmaceuticals. So, you know, the, the idea is to understand that and in doing that, you become a little closer to the sustainability, self-sustainability of medicine as well. So that's my story in a a short nutshell or, you know, kind of the shortest uh, synopsis as I can give it to you.
0: Cool, man. Um, I just wanted people to know who you are that maybe haven't heard you on the air before. It's been a while since we had you on. Now, again, we're talking about herbal medicine today. So why would you think people that are concerned with post-disaster scenarios – Or even just day-to-day living, homesteading, we have tons of people in this audience that are in the permaculture, should be considering learning to use herbal medicines rather than just use all the things that we can get our hands on right now very easily uh, off the shelves. We could either get them and use them now, or we could store them so we could use them in a post-disaster scenario. And instead, we should look to herbal medicine because...
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Excellent question. So. <laughs> that, that can be answered in a number of ways, but primarily, uh, if, if you don't have training, if you're not trained as a doctor or a PA or a nurse practitioner, or a nurse, LPN, RN, whatever it might be, if you're not trained in, in a licensed practitioner with skills and experience in that area, do you really know how to use your medication? So let's say that you've stockpiled, uh, you know, uh, thousands of tablets of different types of antibiotics, for instance, injectable antibiotics, oral antibiotics, all the stuff that you'd need. Do you know how to recognize When, you know, what you're actually working with, do you know the difference between an allergic reaction versus inflammation versus infection? Do you really, do you know the prescribed dosage? Do you know how to go beyond that if you have to? Do you know when not to cut it too short to uh, create a super infection? Do you know all the things that go along with that? If you don't and you're not working in that field, first of all, right there, I think you're wrong. I think you need to, and, and there's nothing wrong with having them as a backup, but they are at best... Uh, you know you're you're a best uh, a neophyte and working with things that are that are way possibly way beyond much more damaging than they might be actually doing good. Secondly, those are limited resources. So let's say you've got all the stockpiles of all these medicine that you that you need, and now things that are unintended come up, and you're una- unable to adapt because all you've got is your resources that you have to ration. So you're you know, the 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 young mother with the, who's pregnant and has a three-year-old child or they're sick or have infection show up at your door or whatever at your community, are you going to turn them away are you going to help them? You know, you've got only a certain amount that you've stockpiled for a certain number of people you have to learn to adapt. And I always say the four, I always talk about it in my school, the four A's of survival and adaptability is one of those four A's, awareness attitude, adaptability, and accountability. And so adaptability is absolutely key that you're able to work, that you have the skills and you're not just completely, uh, you're completely dumbed down to where you can only work with a certain number of resources at hand and, and otherwise you're lost. And thirdly, it's, it's, a, it's sustainable, self-sustainable. You can grow your own medicine. You can grow it in your backyard. You can grow it in your own garden. And people have no idea what you've even got. If it's not food, most people have no idea how to use it. You can teach yourself to some extent how to use these, you can work at home, you can take courses or you can read books and you can actually start working with herbs and I always say you become an herbalist at the point where you've healed yourself, you've worked with something with yourself and it's, and it's worked and, you, and suddenly you realize there's this whole world of plant medicine that really works incredibly well. I'm always astounded myself as much as I've used herbalism for, for a variety of things and a lot in field, a lot of first aid, a lot of uh, serious injuries. Broken bones, even, uh, you know, serious lacerations, ER, normally ER visits. The other day I stubbed my toe really bad. I tore the heck out of it and um, it, it bled like a stuck pig. It was something that probably even could have taken a couple of stitches uh, and I was I was really mad at myself it was dark I was out uh, tucking in the chickens and I came in and I, I just skinned it up really bad on the sharp, sharp root that was sticking out of the ground and because I came up a different way we have a, a pretty big yard and a lot of stuff that's pretty overgrown and uh, so I got in I still had work I had to get down that night I had a deadline I was working on so I just let it I, I rinsed, rinsed it off and I didn't even want to bandage I just let it bleed and I worked on it we have tile floor so I looked down after about 10 minutes and there's like about two tablespoons of blood on the floor, and I'm like, all right, you know, so I get up, and I, I clean up the floor, and I go out, and I go out to Lantana. Lantana is one of those plants that's, that's a considered an invasive species, and everybody, nobody uses this plant except for me. I don't know any other herbalist who uses this this way. I go out, and I grab a nice, juicy, succulent leaf. It's all over our yards. We're just right outside the door, grab some, bring it in, tape it onto this, this uh, wound, and uh, and it's, it's deep. It was into the subcutaneous layer. You know, I opened it up and looked at it, and it was pretty deep, and so uh, tape it on there, and forget about it, you know, and then the next morning, actually, I woke up in the middle of the night and took the bandage off. <laughs> the next morning, I'm out watering my garden, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm standing there by some lantana plants. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that's right. I, I cut myself. I looked down. I couldn't find where I'd cut myself. You know, I'm, yeah. I, So I finally figured it out, but it didn't hurt. I, could, I had to actually really work to even find the edge of the wound. So my point to this is herbs can be extremely effective in certain things and as i said more effective actually than than medicine and the final thing is i'd say on this why is because it's a much more healthy lifestyle i mean why would you why pursue this lifestyle where you know look at the commercials on tv you have problems with heartburn just keep eating crap and stuff and heartburn medicine down your throat. That's how you fix it, rather than...
0: And there 78 <laughs> side effects that you may experience after taking our medication that are worse than the underlying condition it's designed to treat. Exactly. Including sudden death is one of the... I mean, yeah, definitely you're, you're spot on there. Yeah, pause for, Yeah, and you know, you're right, and what you're making me think of when you say works better, I've seen comfrey, as simple as that is, comfrey salves and comfrey leaf of get sores to heal that wouldn't heal, that just refuse to heal. Um, I've seen people that get insect bites, and they kind of dug into them, kind of an impetago type thing or something, and and they're putting ointments and all kinds of crap on it, and you tell them put confrey on it. And honestly, the people around me get, like, they're tired of it. They're like, you just say put confrey on everything. I'm like, well, not everything, but sores, shallow wounds, anything where you're trying to regenerate cells. I just did this. I was up at an event in West Virginia, and they had put some rocks around a tree that weren't there the last time I was there. And I came out in the pitch dark and slammed into one. And I, you uh, a mild laceration abrasion on my wrist. But, I mean, they were cuts that were like a quarter inch deep along the wrist where I slammed across the rock. And I immediately, because we had it all over the place up there, started putting comfrey salve on it. And a week later, I mean, you, it's hard to tell where it was. And I've seen comfrey do this in so many situations. You know in Texas our enemy is the fire ant. And at least, at least five times a year, I end up somewhere with about a 100 of them on me at the same time. And if you, you rub that down with Comfrey, as soon as it happens, it never really goes to that second stage where it's all broken out. And that's, so that's another example of something very, very common that has a history of working better. And in Lawrence Wells' book on Comfrey, he talks about trials that were done with people in hospice, old people with wounds that wouldn't heal, they could never get them to heal, They started applying comfrey or comfrey salve, and and those wounds healed on a dying person. So I don't know anything in modern medicine that does that.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I find that all the time, and in fact, uh, I have used, uh, that, that is one of the common, uh, a common complaint that comes into our herbal clinic is non-healing ulcers, especially diabetic ulcers. Comfrey works very well for that. I actually use Choparol for that more than anything, but Comfrey works very well, but I have my own. I'm sorry, what did you say you use? Choparol, Laria species, it's, uh, uh, also called creosote bush, grows okay. in the high alpine desert mostly in West Texas, New, New Mexico. Yeah, probably, arguably, the best tissue proliferant out there, aside from maybe lantana. Comfrey's right up there, too. It's a close second or third, I'd say. The only, the most dangerous portion of comfrey, not even dangerous, but the thing to watch for is just not to not to put it on a, a wound that's too deep because it'll heal it too quickly, and you'll end up yeah. with you know, stuff getting you know, closed in there, and you end up with anaerobic bacteria. But I, I have my... Something I something
0: there, though. I mean, if you think about that, that's the caution that it works so good that you shouldn't put it on a deep wound, and I always try to remember to say that when I talk about it. But that says something about its effectiveness.
1: Absolutely, and I, I have my own comfrey story actually that was a broken bone. You know, I broke in in the Q course in the qualification course the first year of that is is all medical. You know, you go to what's called the 300F1 portion, which is about seven months, then you do a month internship, and then you go down to what's called Goat Lab. Which we affectionately, or not so affectionately, used to call a cross between Dachau and 4 H. It was basically, um, it was basically, uh, uh, massive sleep deprivation working with, uh, with your patients, which are, are goats, or at the time, you know, we're goats, uh, and you're not allowed to use the word goat. They're always patients. Did
0: you, did you stare at them and make them fall over?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that came later. But, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, uh, I got down there to North Carolina, you know, Fort Bragg. And uh, I had about a week we'd been in process, and I knew uh, you know so I knew everything I knew where everything was at in in the in the med lab area um it's kind of its own little world, huge like twenty foot high you know um this chain link fence that's that's uh that you can't see into um so I, anyway i go by. I go mountain bike riding with a friend we had I had like a week off, and uh, I fall and I break my thumb it 's an avulsion fracture, so in other words, the bone pulled away from my the tend the actual you know connective tissue to the bone pulled away a piece of the bone and uh so it's not to, so so there's no way really to reattach that without what we would be called an open reduction internal fixation or RIF, where they pin it and so anyway i got back i was really upset I, I you know with myself for doing this and i went and x-rayed it and sure enough you could see this huge triangular piece of bone that had pulled away from my thumb joint on my left hand and i'm right-handed I went up to the main hospital, and the doctor said, there's no way you're going to fix this without pinning it. And I said, well, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to recycle. I left my son. I hadn't seen my son for a year and a half almost. I missed his fourth birthday. I was like, I've already felt like enough of a heel as a dad anyway. It's like, I'm not missing any, you know, I'd, I'd miss three more months I'd have to miss, uh, you know, going through this course. And uh, I just wanted out of it. I just wanted to get through it. <laughs> so, uh, and as it was, it was hard enough. Out of 83 people that started, 13 of us graduated, by the way. So, big, big washout rate, right? So I'm sitting there and, and telling him this, and he's like, I don't care. You, you know, you need to pin this, or you're never gonna have your grip strength back. It'll take you months. It'll take you probably two years to even get, to really, to get back to where you can use it again, right? You're gonna have arthritis. It'll be horrible. You can't do it that way. And I, fi- I finally talked him into it. I said, there's no way. And he's like, man, you special forces idiots. I don't care. Get out of here. Get out of my, get out of here and go ahead and get the guy to cast it up. And I don't want to see you again. So I left, and he's shaking his head, calling me names, basically. Okay. And I got so I got it casted up. I went back to the barracks. I cut the cast off. I went to town, and I, bought, I knew there was a little herb shop there. I bought a bunch of comfrey and I bought a bunch of horsetail, and they weren't even that good quality. You know, this was 1989 or 1990, and uh, in North South Car- North Carolina, little town and uh, military town, right. Fort, uh, um, Fayetteville, or we used to call it Vietnam. So I got, the, got, the herb, got those two herbs, took them back to my barracks, I bought a bunch of Ziploc bags, and I separated them down and put some 4x4 gauze in there, and I made myself daily poultices, basically. I hid it underneath my footlocker, scared to, ha- to death that they were going to come in and think I had pot, you know, or something. And uh, I hid it. I go in every morning. You, know, you get about four hours of sleep if, you're, if you have a good night. And so the first thing I do in the morning, put all those in my, my, my uh, cargo pocket, go in, and about every two hours, I change that out and ace wrap my whole hand and wrist and arm there because I had about – three or four weeks that we did microscopy before we started trauma. So I didn't really have to use my hand for about four weeks. Kept those poultices on there of comfrey and horsetail. All the time, it was always on there, always wet, uh, you know, because it's always soaking in through the skin. And uh, yeah, so I, and the bottom line is, I passed. I mean, I got through, and, and every trauma that you have to do, you you get an airway and a breathing and a circulation problem. And the airway problem will always be that you have to cry. You have to perform a cricothyroidotomy where you have to punch a hole in the cricothyroid membrane, pop an ET tube in, and from the time that you determine you have no airway. To the time you get a patent airway and you say, I'm going to crike, you have 90 seconds to do that. And it takes a kung fu grip on that trachea to pull the trachea up, pop the uh, thyroid membrane, pop that ET tube in, and then ensure you have a patent airway. So anyway, long story short, uh, comfrey and horsetail is what got me through that course with needing massive grip strength. Within four months, by the time I got through with that portion and was on to uh, phase two and phase three of the Q course, I had full grip strength. I was fine.
0: Yeah, it's, I've called it a wonder plant, and I think people just have a hard time accepting how much one simple plant can do. We've already learned about two more from you today. I wasn't aware of what Lantana did. Creosote bush, I understood once you gave it another common name. I'm not a a Latin botanical name guy. Um, But on all of this, like, what we're talking about right now sounds like something that it isn't. It's addressing the root cause, where a lot of people would take this as being symptomatic approach. So... I always try to steer people away from the, the, the concept with herbalism of what I call replacement therapy. Uh, you have a headache, instead of an aspirin, I give you willow bark, that type of thing. Uh, just substitution. I don't really think that's a good idea, and I know from your teaching, you don't either. Can you talk about why? Absolutely, and, and the reason is, well, there's two reasons. One
1: is it's not nearly as effective. It's just nothing more than symptomatic help. And we're trying to do with any kind of herbal medicine or natural medicine is you're trying to address the crude cause. So even what you might find doing yourself doing, excuse me, is is going from the outside of an onion. I call it, you know, moving from the outside layer of skin of an onion to the inside. So in other words, a person might have a certain type of let's say they have um, heartburn, you know, really bad. And so you might address a few things that you can do with that. You can use licorice root that works really well, for instance, for the esophagus. One of the best herbs, one of the best mucilagins or what I call a mucosal vulnerary that I know of to work on the esophagus. Comfrey would work there too, of course, marshmallow root, um, all of the, you know, cytospecies. Cyto all of those would work very well to address that root cause, but really the problem is much more than that, and so if they went to an orthodox doctor, they might get, you know, even as something as as extreme as positive uh, proton uh, inhibition or PPIs to cut down the amount of acid in their stomach. Well, the reason they have acid in their stomach probably relates more specifically to something going on with the liver, with the gallbladder, possibly with the pan- pancreas, with the enzymes that those excrete, and how clogged up that system may be through diet. And so what you'll find all a lot of times is if you just use something to decongest the liver, you create this entire cycle. You've freed up this clog in, in the cycle between small intestine, portal vein, to the liver, the hepatocytes, to the gallbladder, to back into the small intestine. To the, to the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine. So you'll find this cycle has a clog in it, and if you can free that up, what you find is it, it moves all that stuff, everything better, to where the, the, uh, the, the fact that they had a bunch of crud in their, uh, their liver was backed up, and what we used to call blood clenchers back in the day, and so their small intestine isn't digesting fats and proteins well enough. It's putting stress on the stomach, which is producing more, more acid and creating more acid. They might have other issues that are causing a problem even with their sphincter, their lower sphincter not closing all the way because of that they're getting splashback this and this heartburn issue. so what you find is you know you start off with something that's the outer layer of the onion work your way towards the inner inner layer and you end up uh, affecting all the other stuff they had too They had IBS or they had you know other other issues that, with their digestion as well that's the first reason and I think that's the most important one the the really I think the most important reason though is we just don't have the language to describe. How herbs work right now, because we've lost that language. Uh, and, that, and that's difficult for people to put their head around. Um, let me get let me just tell you with an example. I went uh, after 15 years, I got out of the military and then I wanted to go to med school really, but I, and my kids were real young. My son is uh, his mother was a, an ex girlfriend, and so I needed to live real close to him, be a part of his life. Of course, all of that was very important to me, and there was just no way I could do that and go to med school. My son got ready to graduate high school, and thought, "I can do this now." I went, so I was, you know, in kind of a midlife, early midlife crisis. I was turning forty. I thought, "Ah, I'll just go to med school now." <laughs> so I got into a bunch of med schools. Um, I started, and, and at this point, I'd already been working with herbs for over fifteen years. I get into med school, and I'm sitting there the first year, and so the, the to just tell you the the uh, um, the spoiler on this is that we had to make we had some financial issues and we had to make I had to make a choice between family or med school I had to walk away from it they kept the door open for a couple of years for me but um, I had to give it up so anyway I'm there the first year med school learning this vast amount of information and I'm like what's going on well, something's wrong here something's not clicking with me as to why I don't really understand why I should learn this and I started to realize oh it's because the entire language that we use to even look at the body is entirely filtered through a pharmaceutical lens, a pharmaceutical, uh, um, a pharmaceutical uh, linguistic you know, structure that doesn't even look at the things it should look at. So in terms of physiology, for instance, as an herbalist, one of the places you should always be looking very closely would be the lymph system. Sorry about that. Do you want to start sorry. that over? No, it's fine. Okay. I'm sorry my dogs are going crazy about something. Uh, it happens all the time. Okay. Anyway, so the one thing that's very important as an herbalist is to look at the lymph system, the lymph and immune system, right? Right. Uh, in, in, in Western medicine, in pharmaceutical medicine, I'm, uh, unless you're unless you're maybe an oncologist looking at issues with you know lymph cancer, uh, lymphoma, etc., it's just a, a byproduct really of the circulatory system. It's not even looked at. So there's an entire different structure how you look at the body, the physiology of it, and the language we use too. So there, you just gave the example of aspirin versus willow. The way that those work aren't even the same. It's not even acetyl uh, salicylic acid is not even the same as salicylic acid in many respects. You You can find... Uh, herbs that are, for instance, leukotriene inhibitors like butterbur that work very well for allergic reactions and such. And you can find herbs like w- white willow bark or, or meadow sweet is even better, really, because it's not as bitter for the for things that are, that are inflammatory in nature. But they won't do exactly the same thing because they're not designed to do that. And back to your original point where you said, hey, you know, you take this, this medication and it's going to do 20 other side effects. Those really aren't even side effects. Those are effects. The problem is our body doesn't have any idea what to do with that one pharmaceutical single constituent that hits all the tissues and causes all of these these tissues okay. you know a good example that's like uh, estrogen you know estrogen for women who are, are, are menopausal. Uh, now, this, you know, the, the estrogen that they're giving them is affecting all the tissues, all the cells of the body. That's what estrogen does. The body has no way, because it wasn't produced by the body in the way that it would normally be produced and, and the pathways it would normally take. Now the whole body's saying, oh my God, I've got estrogen everywhere. You know, what do I do? It exactly. starts reacting to that.
0: <laughs> exactly. Because the body, okay, women are supposed to stop producing so much estrogen at some point and they go through a transition in their physiology and if it, it, we should be guiding that that transformation rather than trying to stop it because you're not going to stop it it's like trying to change the the course of a river you might do it for a while but it's going to go back where it wants to eventually people along the mississippi and the missouri are learning that right now right so it's yeah, it is yeah. kind of the same thing the other thing is what you're saying is very eastern and it's, it, it's, it's, it's underpinnings. And if we look to the, the people that have done the most with medicines uh, from the, the herbal world, it's, it's, it's probably the Chinese and, and the Indians, uh, the, the people from India, you know, the Ayurvedic stuff. And they seem to have this very long tradition. But when I look there, I also start looking at, like, other indigenous cultures and people that have, like, very low incidences of things like um, arthritis, which is inflammatory. And if you look at their diets – Isn't it interesting that you always notice that there are natural anti-inflammatories in their diets, in their daily living? I mean, have you ever kind of looked at that and thought about how that – like if you look at – the the Indian culture has a very low incidence of a lot of inflammatory diseases or did until we started putting Big Macs on on the corner and what have you – and if you look at their diet, it's it, almost every person from that culture is eating turmeric almost every single day, which is a, a, a very effective anti-inflammatory.
1: Absolutely. And beyond that, even I think you'd find uh, on the eastern side, you know, Chinese medicine especially, you would find di- diets would differ based on the season of the year, you know, because <laughs> you had instead of, eating stuff that was out of season, you ate stuff that was in season. You were with part, of, you know, because, of course, the huge agricultural uh, side of things as well. And, and we probably did that as well at one point in our own culture. But you find that we've gone away from that. You find energetic medicine in our own Western culture too, right? Tra- tra- traditional Greek medicine. Mm-hmm. But you go all the way back to Galen for that. And we had our own kind of version of that. And so, yeah, I always say that, that health is on three different levels, the, the level of the body, the level of the energy or energetic, which we would be like the Ayurvedic or Chinese or even traditional Greek medicine, and then the level of the spirit, which is what you find in a lot of indigenous and aboriginal cultures. Uh, I spent about three weeks with a shaman in, in Nicaragua, in, you know, in the deep jungles of Nicaragua, uh, where you would find things like what we talk about, for instance, uh, in America, for things like addiction and depression and, and all the you know, I mean, what do we have, like 20% of our adults <laughs> uh, are, are on some sort of behavior modification drug like that, right? And they say, well, that's because that's actually a spiritual illness, not not talking religion or anything like that. Just you have no position. You have no place on the planet. You don't know what you're doing here. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah.
0: I completely agree with that. I think that I was just talking on yesterday's show about how, so I've been really working hard, but working hard mentally in the last few weeks and being chained to my desk and the computer and, you get to a point where you just feel like, ugh. And so yesterday I got to get outside. I got a shovel in my hand. I moved about a half a ton of dirt. And I felt great. And I think that's because, okay, now you're doing something that has a meaningful purpose. And I think that there's there's a tremendous amount there. That like, Spirit is probably one of the better words for it that – you know, in the the the, the ilk of patient heal thyself, it's not always about what you put in your body but what you put in your mind.
1: Absolutely. One of my biggest things that that I get on people, especially people that come into the clinic with depression and depression related issues is uh, we start talking about re-earthing. I tell them, look, man, do you have a garden? If you got a garden, go out there. And in Texas, you can do this almost year round. You know, I mean, maybe there's a month where you can't go Mm -hmm. out there and in your bare feet, I want you to dig through the earth with your, through the soil with your feet. I want you to lie in the dirt. I want you just to hang out there. And I call it re-earthing. I have no idea whether it's electromagnetic. I don't know what it is, but there, is there an effect that has on people with in terms of depression. I've seen it time and time again. And it always it never ceases to amaze me. I think it's just, you know, and I know you probably feel the same way. There's we have completely disconnected from where our food comes from, where our water comes from, the air we breathe. So that's a big part of it too.
0: Well, I would ask you this. When you were born, did you have shoes on your feet? <laughs> right? So shoes are a, a, they're an old invention. It's not like they've only been around 50 years or something like that. But they're relatively modern to the human species to put shoes on your feet. So we evolved, however, I know some people get all upset and fuzzy over that word, but one way or another, we evolved as a species in contact with the Earth. So it's very reasonable to believe that there's some level of physiological part of that evolvement that needs to be whole contact with dirt. Uh, and really, I think both you and I mean the same thing when we say dirt, but you have to clarify for some people, soil. that The, right. the dusty stuff that you see coming up behind a plow, that's, not, that's, that's dirt. Soil is alive. There's so much life in soil. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that doesn't actually, if you get them out of their little bubble they're in and have them actually smell good forest soil, doesn't go, that smells good. Now there's actually no reason, right, that that really should be the case. It doesn't smell like scrambled duck eggs that we were talking about before we went on air, right? It it smells like dirt, but it smells good to people. There's a reason that it smells good to you. It's because of, I, I think there's a link. That's part of what you are.
1: Absolutely, and I think we find uh, so many of our of our you know illnesses and and, uh, and and maladies in the 20th century or 21st century in the in a first world environment like the U.S. are coming from. Aspects of being disconnected to that and one of those is, is being, is this has actually been put up and is being researched right now is eczema. You know, eczema, the rate of eczema and skin issues for people, you know, atopic dermatitis would be, has gone up something like 40% since 1970 in our population. Just huge amount of growth mm-hmm. in that. And what they're, one thing they're finding that one of the theories that's been prum- proposed is usually with people who have eczema there is a preponderance of what we call our helper t cell that th2 or type 2 helper t cells and so we have we have a type 1 and a type 2 among other things of our he- helper t cells so they find more th2 cells than th1 like a real big preponderance and uh, and uh, it's out of balance and what what the theory is is that Because we grow up in such an overly hygienic society, smaller families, more urbanized—you know—you don't pick up germs from your bigger, your older siblings as much. You're not out playing in the dirt, getting that bacteria under your fingernails and in your—you know—from the soil. Um, What happens is, we don't have. As much of the helper, uh, we don't have as much of the TH1 cells, which would be more along the antibacterial, antimicrobial line, and so because of that, the TH2 cells can can basically proliferate more, and it's been wherever you have proliferation of them, you tend to have more of an autoimmune or auto uh, you know autoimmune reaction with the skin, which is what we basically have as autoinflammation of the skin with eczema.
0: Well, isn't that, like, like if you actually look at all the diseases that have been named, that didn't have a name before 100 years ago, and all the diseases on the rise, and all these things that are showing up everywhere, almost all of them have some level of an autoimmune component. So that's your body attacking itself, for those maybe not familiar with the word. So now, did... I don't know did all of your bo- all the uh, bodies of all human beings one day get together and say you know what it's 1950 now let's start attacking ourselves right did we did we biomechanically or chemically change through a natural process between 1900 and 2014 as beings or must there be some environmental component to why all of a sudden Everybody has, you know, not everybody, but there's so many people that have their bodies attacking themselves. There's no reason for there to be more lupus today than there was in the past. And don't give me, oh, we're better at diagnosing it, because I'll tell you what, it's a serious enough condition. You might not have called it that in the past, but you damn well knew you had it. We didn't have all these autoimmune and, and heavy inflammatory conditions just a hundred years ago. So something has to have changed. And as much as I like to beat up on GMO corn, it's not just GMO corn. It's our entire lifestyles.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you find, uh, this is this another good one, is the... Um World Health Organization statistics, I started looking into them to try to find, well, what about, you know, we have a pretty significant um, a percentage of our population now, a growing percentage that's allergic to food, different types of food, like even, you know, deathly allergic, like anaphylactic reaction mm-hmm. type allergic, like peanuts is usually the biggest one. Uh, and so we've got this big deal with peanut allergies here. And I was wondering, what percentage of people let's say in a you know in western africa or some place where they're they're really you know where we're giving them food that because they don't have enough and they're they're starving they've not enough for nutrition what percentage of those people are allergic to peanuts and i i think it's like 0. 0.0000 you know there maybe there's a one in there somewhere but it, you know it's it's so that, yeah that's part of it too for sure and the, the food that we eat in general going back to the the organic portion of the soil that 5% of the soil that has to be alive that's not anymore in our in our big agro soils all of that has to be a part of this uh, this concept of where our food comes from, from the time that it grows in the soil or wherever we grow it in organic food all the way to the time that we take it into our body. Now, there's another statistic that says we've lost, uh, I think, up to 40% of our nutrient value uh, from our food since 1950 mm-hmm. to today of, of our foods that are growing in our monoculture-type crops. So all of this, put it into our body, Back to my point earlier about when I was saying, you know, somebody who says, for instance, uh, GERD or, or, you know, esophageal reflux, heartburn, and, and goes to... Uh, all the crap you put in your body and, and as your body digests that and it goes from your your uh, small intestine into your portal vein and then into your liver we actually get what's called portal vein hypertension because the liver is so backed up trying to unclog trying to we have these cells and they're called Kupffer cells and their job is sort of like um, I guess you could this is an exact analogy but fish that swim at the mouth of a stream picking up food they basically they are macrophages that, that get all the garbage out the blood cleansers of old you know is what we would yep. call that. They're, busy, they're so busy and so overtaxed that our, our portal vein uh, hypertension, now we end up with crap leaking out of the blood veins into the extracellular space. Now we get that autoimmune reaction because now our antibodies are being formed to these antigens that we've never seen before. They're like, what is this doing here? It's not actually, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not maybe a pathogenic virus or bacteria, but it's not supposed to be here. Hey, that looks a little bit like the stint. Stym- in fact, it looks a lot like these, you know, this particular type of epithelium on this particular part... In inside our body, let's attack that too. So that's what we think we're finding happening.
0: Yeah, that that makes complete sense. And again, when I look at the overall issue, I just say to myself, it wasn't always this way, and we must be what changed. when you're talking about soil... um, I think people are on a real misunderstanding about why our food is so much nutri- uh, nutrient, nutrient uh, less nutrient dense. It's they, what they want to tell you is well, all the boron is gone, all the, the you know the chromium is gone, all the sulfur is gone. All these minerals have been depleted from the soil. I'm sorry, there's only a one word answer to that, and it's bullshit. <laughs> it's there. And Now, it may have been depleted in the upper uh, strata of the topsoil some, but all these minerals exist. But the way those minerals become bioavailable to the plants that can't directly harvest them are through these interrelationships with other plants. All of these interrelationships require bacteria, fungi, and exudates from the plant roots. And if you kill the soil, that interaction can't happen. And by the way, if you plant a single crop... In a a 400,000-acre clump, that interaction can't happen because the other plant's not there anymore. So the only way we'll actually get those nutrients back in the food isn't through fertilization. It isn't through just better soil management. The soil actually has to be alive because all of those minerals exist. If people understood how little of a mineral a plant needs, it would blow them away. Uh, When you look at something like silica, there's enough silica. In a a teaspoon to provide all the nutrients that a half an acre of plants in most instances need to grow, but they can't get it. That's me, because the soil's dead, they can't get to it. Yeah, that goes
1: back to, I think, uh, more than anything, back to the post-World War One era, you know, the NPK, the, the experiments that were done when they found that if you just had NPK values, you didn't have to have organic portion to your soil as long as you had nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and that, lo and behold, was about the time that most of the Chemical, you know, munitions companies needed to put, corporations needed a place to be able to put what they've been working on through the war machine. And, you know, hey, well, fertilizers the next thing. And so then we get this whole, this in, entire misnomer of what soil health is, taking the life out of it and putting an NPK value and we can grow food out of it. And that's there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Another thing that that reminds me of, this is a little little on, uh, tangent from it, but similar in terms of health, was an experiment they did back in the 90s where they took uh, chicken coop with 50 chickens in it inside a barn. And they first, they took the readings from everything from the whole neighborhood, from the, from the whole, is in a rural area and all the, all the chickens and everything. They wanted to see can, uh, resistance to antibiotics, can it, can it spread? You know, can it be beyond just, you know, feeding the chickens uh, antibiotics like they do now? So they feed these chickens antibiotics in the cage. Well, they also had 50 chickens in a cage outside the barn. So they test these chickens, and sure enough, within whatever it was, tetracycline or something, within a matter of a couple of weeks, all the chickens they were feeding the antibiotics, the typical antibiotics, uh, the formulas they'll feed the chickens that we eat in, you know, mainstream big agro. And so uh they test these chickens, they're all resistant, no problem. About two weeks after that, so within about six weeks, the chickens outside in the cage were also resistant, even though they had no contact whatsoever with each other and were not fed any antibiotics. Within three or four months, the neighbors and the closest neighbors had the same antibiotic resistance. They did this experiment again in germany and they they ran it for two years instead of just a few months, and they found the entire town the entire village had that antibiotic resistance, even though they weren't eating the chickens, even though they weren't taking any of the antibiotics
0: you know? wow yeah i mean it's it, it, it that's actually hard to get your head around um wow i i I don't really even know how to respond to that 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 doesn't even seem to make sense but transmission of a bioorganism through other living systems, I guess it does. So basically everybody around this thing was being medicated. We're all being medicated through the soil and Without the water and the air. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's another way to look at it. Without your consent you're being medicated.
1: Yeah, it really is a sign of our times, I think. What something like sixty percent or sixty five percent of all the antibiotics that we actually create are used for our animals. They're not even used for humans. So that's something to consider too. Right? Yeah. Hey. And this is another place where herbalism actually shines, because herbalism, they, there are herbs out there that are incredibly strong antibacterials. Not necessarily just by themselves, but they actually have um, they have certain types of con- certain types of constituents that cause a weakness in the ability for for pathogenic bacteria to defend themselves. An example of that would be one of them is called MHC. It's a that stands for five prime It's a uh, it's a protein basically that, that lives in the leaves and the roots, but mainly the leaves of any plant that has berberine in it, like golden seal, like algarita, like like any of the barberries. Uh, they all have berberine. There's a whole family, the berberidaceae family, that has is named after berberine. It got famous. Berberine was a constituent that got famous back in the 60s in Calcutta because it was used. Golden seal wiped out an entire cholera epidemic. The antibiotics couldn't do anything to it. Pen- that was in the day of penicillin. But uh, but Golden Seal stopped this this epidemic that had been going on for almost a year and a half in Calcutta back in, I think, 68. So it became really studied, and they said, okay, berberine. So they named the whole family of plants after that. Uh, ironically, Golden Seal is not in that family, but still, it's, you know, all these <laughs> plants are. And so... What we find is that berberine is incredibly antibacterial to, uh, certain types of, of staph. And for instance, MRSA, meth, you know, the, the resistant, uh, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus MRSA. Um, and that's really cool. But the thing is, if you have MHC involved too, there's the, the ability of berberine to kill uh, those bacteria goes up like up to 16 times. And what happens is that MHC is, it enters the cell, the bacteria cell freely, and it, and it disengages what's called an efflux pump mechanism, which is these bacteria have their own defense mechanisms. And when something comes in through the cell wall that's not supposed to be there, they pump it right back out. And this happens in milliseconds, maybe even microseconds. But they're constantly doing this. Well, MHC dis- deactivates these things. So even if it were nothing more than just an adjuvant or helper type of herb with with antibiotics it's very effective but you can use it with uh with bacterial where with antibacterial herbs and it and for staph like staph skin infections like mrsa there you have an incredibly effective antibacterial herbal uh, formula that that is so effective and I've used it for cellulitis I've used these herbs for for, for strep throat I've used them for uh, impetigo for all kinds of skin and staph and throat and upper respiratory uh staph and strep type infections and they're very, very effective to do that. So this is something else to think about, and and every plant has thousands of constituents in it, so it's not like an antibiotic where you give somebody an antibiotic, and if you watch closely, what you'll find is that bacteria actually will group around these single constituents, and they will transfer and transmit information to each other as to how to overcome it, how to become resistant to it. They will use plasmids, which are like DNA strands from bacteria to bacteria. There are even... Uh, There are even documented cases of non-pathogenic bacteria, certain uh, like uh, uh, basically benign E. coli strains being taught to be pathogenic by pathogenic bacteria. I think in this case it was staph. So that's really interesting too. So these are cultures. These are living, growing, breathing colonies. They form biofilms. They do all these things that we really don't even understand at all and that pharmaceutical medicine barely is knocking at the door of a lot of these things.
0: Yeah, and you know what I noticed when I started going through herbal actions? I did a whole series on 40 herbal actions. That you start looking at herbs that you don't think of as medicinal, and they're antimicrobial, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and it just, the list just goes on. And I'm talking like parsley, oregano, sage. So my thought is not just learn to use these things as medicine the way we think of the word medicine, but let's get as much of these fresh herbs into our diet as possible as well.
1: Absolutely. So we've come back around, you know, food is the best medicine. There's no question about that. And if you were to study Ayurvedic medicine, they believe every disorder in the human body comes originally from the digestive tract in one way or another. So that's a huge one. And then you find that these, these you know, approaching, like you just said, where we start to incorporate that into the diet gives us the strength, around uh, seasonal changes, around flu epidemics, around being exposed to things, boosting our immune system. If you went back 2,000 years to China and you were, say, the physician to, to an emperor and the emperor got sick, you'd be fired or worse. You know, he might even yeah, be executed. Yeah, a lot worse. <laughs> right, because your, your job was not to treat him after he was sick, which that's the way we do it in the West. That's the body. When I talked about the body, energy, and spirit, the body – that your job was to treat him in the energetic level so he never got sick. So what we have is this misnomer in the West. We say, well, you know, this flu has an incubation period of 48 hours. So you go and you, you're standing in an elevator and everybody's coughing on you and you just, you get out and you're like, oh my God, I've got to get home and just scrub my skin with a, with a brush. I can feel I got infected. And the Western Orthodox response would be, that's ridiculous. There's an incubation period. You couldn't feel sick yet. Well, the reality is for that 48 hours, that flu bug's not just sitting around checking his watch saying, oh, hey, it's, we still got 36 hours. Let's chill. You are under (laughs) massive attack and by the time you show symptoms and you're coughing and sneezing and have a sore throat, you have already been sick for 48 hours. It's just now you've got enough pain, a big enough lesion in your throat maybe from the bacterial attack or or flu, whatever, viral attack to where you actually feel sick. Mm. So So back to the food thing, this is how we prevent that from happening. We support the tissue. We heal with herbs. We heal from the inside of the body out rather than from the outside of the body in. So we find that sometimes, I mean, I've worked with strep throat and I have helped people get through strep throat. I never want to use the word treat or cure, of course, because of, because of our, you know, because of our screwed up way we look at society or way we look at, um, at herbs. Uh, and and working with them legally, but I have helped people overcome strep throat from nothing more using nothing more than what we would call mucosal vulneraries, and those are herbs that basically seal, soothe, and protect the mucosa. they They probably provide also. They probably stimulate. They have we have they have what called a mucin or mucopolysaccharides that stimulate the submucosa lymph to work harder as well. And so. For whatever reason that may be, whether it's through just the, the soothing, protecting concept or whether it's stimulating the submucosal lymph, because we have lymph everywhere in our body, don't think that your lymph is only in your lymph nodes, uh, it, it, whatever it is that that happens is uh, enough for the body to be able to repair itself and overcome the infection. So, you know, I see this time and time again. So working with the body that way is a gentler, And more gradual way, but it also, as you mentioned, you know, includes diet. It includes understanding how to incorporate certain things in your diet. You mentioned parsley. Parsley uh, root is an amazing uh, medicinal herb. I use it all the time for certain things. For urine, in urinary tract infections, it's a diuretic. But it's a diuretic that actually gives us back a lot of minerals. Gives us a lot of selenium selenium is something to think about for instance in the case of, of uh, Ebola you know uh, there's there's some uh, some research going on in terms of selenium deficits versus uh, or so having enough selenium and being resistant to the Ebola virus strain or having your body having a better immune system to it uh it's a great it's what we would call a um, an adaptogen, in other words, an herb that helps our body deal with uncompensated stress, which in America, in modern-day America, is one of the biggest, it's epidemics, one of the b- biggest problems we have with adults especially, is uncompensated stress, and all of the issues that come off of that the you know the increased cortisol in our body and the lowered immune system over time because we're not getting enough sleep we're not getting enough enough uh, uh, the right kind of nutrition we're constantly under stress we're sitting on our butts all day we're not able we're not exercising the days of the fight or flight when our adrenals were awakened because we're being chased by a saber toothed tiger those are gone and you can no longer take a spear and run it through somebody at least not more than once probably and so because of that we can't really get that that reaction to fight or flight out at the moment it happens. So even if you go and exercise at the gym, at the end of the day after you've had a road rage incident on the way to work in the morning, you've still got that eight hours or whatever it was that you had cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, all the stuff that that got raised in your bloodstream and causes this hormonal balance or imbalance really that you have to respond to. So all of this wraps up back into food like you mentioned as well. Food is medicine.
0: Yeah, definitely. On 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 that note, with all the things we've talked about that go wrong with the conventional supply lines. And I just think out of a uh, a immediately available standpoint and quality and just connection, we should be growing a lot of these things ourselves. What are your thoughts on some ways people can get started growing their own herbals that they can use for medicinal purposes? I think it's a
1: great idea, and I think there's two things you should bear, bear in mind. One of them is use the stuff that's local to you if you can. So we'll start to learn what is growing around your own neighborhood and your own yard that's already there. It's already growing in the ecosystem and it's probably doing it well. An example I like to give down here is Algarita. Algarita grows everywhere here, but it's only really a central Texas plant. Uh, it's related to other, you know, barberries around the country. But it is an amazing, I talked about golden steel earlier and it's really substitutes for anything in the gut The golden seal When we go to Nicaragua, to the jungles, when we have, you know, our teams that go down there and do stuff, Algarita is the herb of choice for any kind of gut stuff that you get normally. If you can get it ahead of time, if you, you know, you feel starting to feel sick, you start taking Algarita, more chances are more, much more often than not that, that you'll, you'll lick it right, you'll nip it in the bud. Uh, so that would be an example, you know, the stuff that's local. Secondly, uh, what do you need? You know, what does your body need? So, so this is where we kind of get into yourself as an herbalist. What helps you? So as you start to learn about herbs because you're just, you need to learn about them, uh, for your own body and you start taking something or you start working with an herb and next thing you know you're feeling better. How does that grow? Find out about how it grows and if nothing else, you know, start that plant even if it's just in a pot in your windowsill and then you start learning about what we just talked about organic soil and you start a, you know, we start a little worm bin under your sink and so you start actually creating live soil. and and the organic portion of soil you need. So you're learning about that. You're learning about how this plant, you know, relates to too much water, not enough water, certain types of soil, whatever it might be that it's growing in. And and then from there, you can move that into, you know, a garden space. What I like to say is, you know, we've got monoculture, we've got polyculture, and then we've got forest gardening. And, And the goal for me for most of my herb gardens, for medicinal herbs is to grow them in a forest garden environment where we have the whole seven you know different levels of 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 uh, of everything that's going on from canopy all the way down to our rhizomatis layer, and we've got all of these different aspects of our garden interacting because what happens is we get a much more potent uh, herb there's, there' whether it's there's more bioavailability because of the nutrients we are talking about being more available in the plant in the first place, or whether it's just that they're just stronger because they've had to fight harder. Uh, but whatever it is, they're better medicine. So that should be your end goal. And if you can already get that from plants that are growing in your backyard anyway, well, then more power to you there.
0: Well, and I would add to this, like, so... I like testing soil. I think it makes sense. I like amending soil with with compost and compost teas and other things that brings life into the soil. I think that makes sense. But my belief is if you you look at a a piece of soil or a a patch of earth that is uh, several yards by several yards, uh, three to five yards by three to five yards in, in size, if there's at least 20 different things growing in there, that soil is not only healthy, it's going to be getting healthier over time monocropping is not just wrong because it's stupid. It's wrong because it doesn't occur in nature. It doesn't happen. And there are monocrops that you'll see in a natural system, but they're temporary and reparative. They're pioneer species that are saying, everything is wrong, and I am the only thing that will grow here, so I'll put down roots, I'll bind the soil, or I'll break the soil, and they go away relatively quickly in the grand scheme of things. When you have anything dominated by a single species, something's wrong with the soil health. And I think that if you do basic improvements to the soil and then polyculture the shit out of it, the plants actually know what to do. They start those exodative uh, interactions with each other. And I think one of the easiest places to do that is with herbs. Because if you think about, like, basic culinary herbs, if you kill um, sage, you've done something bad wrong, right? I mean, unless you planted it in a rock, you've done something really bad wrong if you kill sage. You kill oregano... It, you know, it's pretty tough stuff once it's established. Basil is a little more tender, but, I mean, so just like those three culinary herbs. And if we start adding some medicinals, comfrey is, is a dynamic accumulator. Plantain is a very versatile herb. If we can just get a large variety into a piece of ground, those plants actually will begin the reparative process of the soil. It might take some work to get them established, but once they are – it, it kind of takes on a life of its own, and that 's what you want
1: absolutely and I, Of course, this conversation could go on for hours but but the thing the, the what I call the bridges across there are very important too, which are your insect life and your animal life. so if mm. you can work with just black soldier fly larvae, if you can work with of course vermiculture and, and you know whatever red wrigglers or some kind of worm, and if you can use, work with uh, you know uh, manure, you know so what I do for instance is I, in my forest gardens are all on a gentle slope, and I have swales of you know, big, big berms of the rabbit waste, you know, rabbit turds and and uh, hay, basically, or straw, rather, uh, together at berms, and I water those berms, and those berms basically soak in through the ground, so it's just like a never-ending compost tea if it rains, whatever, all of this compost tea that basically washes down, and I tell you, over seven years, well, of doing that, really, only three years, but that forest garden area used to be just a mess. I mean, it was horrible limestone, uh seemed you know, just dry, cracked, there wasn't much growing there. You cannot reach down in that soil now anywhere, and it's a big... It's it's, a, it's probably a uh, maybe a I would say, 50 foot by 100 foot, you know, patch. You can't reach down in there and grab out a handful of dirt without coming up with a worm of some kind, you know. So it's just, th- these are the things that you do over time to build it up uh, and, and are extremely important, as you said, in both our nutrient value that we're getting out of the earth for food and, and absolutely for medicine. This is, you know, we, this is how we were meant to eat. We weren't meant to eat monoculture crops. <laughs> it never were and never will be.
0: Now, beyond just, you know, including herbs in your diet and a basic concept, like if you get a scrape, put comfrey on it, do you think people can really learn to be effective with the use of herbals without going to school for it? You have this incredible background at your medical school, uh, a special forces medic. What about the person that's like, I don't even have that kind of time to think about dedicating to this, but I'd like to know how to better care for the health of myself and my family?
1: Yeah, no you can't necessarily from other schools but you can from mine. So how about that for a shameless plug? I have <laughs> my school is set up to do just that, to take the prepper, a person who doesn't have any medical training at all, or I mean I have doctors in my classes too, but if wherever they are on that spectrum and turn them in and teach them to be practical herbalists at home in about a 70 hour. I have I, I have a 2-year course, but the the basic introduction to it is a 12-week uh, course that's online that's two nights a week of interactive webinar <clears throat> Q&A everything is just like you're sitting in a classroom I have an online classroom with literally dozens of downloads of different stuff as well as the webinars that are recorded as well as Q&A forums, a chance to be able to get, you know, work through cases. I even have a little scenario that we do as a group in a post-disaster situation where we have to set up an herbal clinic, you know. So how would we do that? How do we set up a clinic in that? I have a book now that covers all of this as well, or a lot of it. It's called The Herbal Medic. You can go to to theherbalmedic.com. Uh, theherbalmedic.com with the V the in front, theherbalmedic.com and you can see the online course, it's, you know, kind of an overview of that, you can see the book, all my other stuff, the school links, my podcast as well, I have literally probably a hundred hours if not more of podcasts on herbalism stuff that is for free if you just want to check it out and listen to it. YouTube, I've got, I've got, probably three or four hours of YouTube uh, video classes on herbal first aid and eyewashes and all the different stuff we do with herbs. So that is out there. And I'm, of course I'm giving myself the shameless plug, but that's out there in general, if you want to find that stuff. And then the bottom line is you have to use it. So I, you know, for me, I had to go through my mind and think, how can I do this online to deliver it instead of people having to come down to the school, although they do that too. We have plenty of classes on campus. But how can I do it online for people who live, you know, thousand miles away to be able to get the same result to when they're done? They say, you know what, I'm really comfortable using herbs now at home for minor stuff for myself and my family, and this is it. I also have an herbal first aid kit I sell that I don't know anybody else who has one even anywhere near it that's got, all of these herbs in it that I would say are, are kind of the baseline herbal first aid kit for a post disaster situation, uh, that you can, you can take that. I have all of the contents in there written out in paper. How you actually use them, that could be a baseline to learn from too. You don't have to buy my kit, but you could, you could get the, you know, buy it and get the paper and from then on make your own stuff and use that as, as a springboard. You know, my, my end result is I just want people to get better at this. And so I've tried to organize it and get it down into this practical, compendium, and practical place where people have all the resources available, and all they have to do is basically sit there and be a part of it in order to learn.
0: You know, and then taking things down to the most simplistic level, if you were in a scenario where you had to deal with, let's say, a disaster or simply the lack of access to medicine, and you had to name three herbs that you would have access to, what would they be and Why? I think I'd probably say
1: um, because I'm so used to using algarita and I like algarita a lot, I would say Algorita, I would say Chaparral that I mentioned earlier, the creosote bush, and I would say Echinacea and Gustifolia. Not Echinacea purpurea, but Echinacea and Gustafolia. Um, those three are the most, uh, those three cover the most wide spectrum of, of infection, anti-infectious type herbs that you that I could possibly think of together really, of just three herbs together. Plus, individually, they do so many different things. The uh, algarita is good for anything in the gut, anything in the mucous membrane from the mouth to the other end of your of your of your GI tract, all the way, um, it's it's incredible for any kind of an external uh, gram positive uh, infection as well. We have, and it's also good for digestive complaints. So different types of digestive stuff. It's an anti nausea. The leaf is the Chaparral, wound healer, best anti herpes family um, viral antiviral herb that I know of. Period. Better than. You know, for even for HSV-1 and HSV-2, better than acyclovir, Good, for, uh, great for any herpes family virus. So shingles, I've used it in Nicaragua on people with massive shingles issues and seen it turn things around in literally a matter of an hour or two. Um, incredible for for overheat stroke and overheatedness and a lot of other things as well. Wound healing that we talked about earlier, incredible wound healer, anti-infective, anti-inflammatory. And then echinacea and gustafolia, Man, I mean, the list is long on that one, but everything from rattlesnake bites, and it used to be used that way, it, it inhibits, uh, hyaluronidase, which is the enzyme that if, without that enzyme, rattlesnake poison won't get into, won't get to the rest of your body. It, so it inhibits that greatly, and that's through your bloodstream as well as externally. It's an incredible wound healer for toxic wounds. I've used it on brown, recluse, ulcerated, horribly gross, you know, infected bites and seen it turn around in a matter of a couple of days. Uh, internally, of course, it's an incredible lymph, uh, a booster and boosts our count of uh, of white blood cells macrophages and uh, dendritic cells and neutrophils by 3 to 4 times in the first 24 to 48 hours so just a whole realm of possibilities for a post disaster environment with those three herbs
0: just for the benefit of people listening augustifolia is a narrow leaf coneflower and perpia is the 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 standard Cone flower that people are familiar with it 's in a lot of gardens and things like that, you made it very specific. You meant one versus the other. Can you talk about why yeah there's
1: been a misunderstanding on that through the ages I think through the over the last couple centuries. So purpurea is the purple cone flower that if you go get a seed packet from the hardware store it 's going to be in every seed packet it grows really easy and gustafolia is the narrow leaf as you mentioned. The root of that is what we use for the uh, it has alkaloids in it that you don 't find in the root of the purpurea that are good for that snake bite uh, antitoxin. Round recluse bite, that kind of thing, very, very good for that. While internally, some of the some of the things that don't make it, some of the constituents that don't make it through the liver from the purpurea make it through from the angustifolia. If you mix the two together, you got the best possible combination. So I always mix my purpurea and angustifolia, and even Polita. There's there's probably. Half of, there's probably 13 or 14, maybe even more species of, of echinacea around the U.S. But uh, but I would say if you had to choose between the two, the most effective for the bang for the buck across the spectrum would be your angustifolia.
0: And if you get a choice, mix the two together. Very cool. So you've mentioned a couple of times about, you know, having people go down to Nicaragua and stuff like that. And how does that um, fit into the training picture for your students here uh, when it comes to studying herbalism? Sure. We have everything I do is based on four factors. And the first factor is lecture,
1: which is I try to keep that to a minimum. People get sick and tired of hearing me talk. It's like drinking out of a fire hose. Usually if I'm standing up in front of a class, you know, it's like, ah, give me, you know, I'll give you as much information as you can digest it as fast as you want. That's the lecture. Hands on is what we try to do most. So about 60 percent. Then after that. Uh, you know, whole new, we wipe the slate clean and we go into scenario. How do we take all of this and how do we add a little bit of uh, adrenaline, a little bit of enthusiasm, you know, a little bit of op for, you know, opposing forces, whatever it might be. And you do this now under duress, you know, and there's all the things you learned here. Now let's put some, some reality into it. And then finally, the fourth is, let's do it for the real world. So I have a nonprofit. profit well, not me, I, I co-founded a non called Herbal Medics, and we go all over the place into areas like third and fourth world environments and do herbal clinics. We use our primitive. Remember, I mentioned the primitive engineering. One of the first things you learn as a primitive engineer is how to make really efficient and and very good uh, slow sand filters, so that we can go anywhere as long as we've got some PVC pipe and we've got some some kind of barrel or something to hold water in, and maybe it's something with a little bit of elevation to build elevation with some wood. We can build sand or uh, we can build water filtration that is ninety nine point 9% of some of the worst, most disgusting water you've ever seen, and I've, I've drunk out of it even before. It's really ready to, and I've never been sick off of it. It's incredible what you can do with slow sand filtration. Your only limitation really is your drip rate. You're not allowed, you know, you're not going to get it real fast. It's called slow sand for a reason, but still amazing. So we'll do that. Uh, we'll, we'll, this year we're going to go and teach people how to blacksmith and knife make. We have one of the best knife makers in Texas, in my opinion, as part of our instructor, Cadre, and he'll be uh, working with some of the Rama Indians in the Nicaraguan jungle, teach them how to make their own knives, arrow. They still hunt with, you know, bow and arrow and spear and teach them them how to do that instead of the – what they do now is they take apart machetes, cut apart machetes and file them by hand. So this gives them something to make as well and they want some – they want to create sort of cultural tourism for themselves, have a cultural economy. So this helps them with that too. Uh, and then herbal clinics, you know, how do we go down there and work with these people who a lot of times they don't trust Western medicine anyway and I've done this so many times through the military. Where you go down and you do these either med readies or med caps or whatever you know they're called at the time, and you're just handing out antibiotics and steroids like they're candy, and you you, and then you leave. And so two weeks later, everybody's back to where they started. Plus now they have a dependency on this pharmaceutical medicine to get to get well. And so instead, we go in and we teach them sustainable medicine. And when we're done with this, wherever we go, you know all the different things we do, we come back and now all of my students that have gone and volunteered through the nonprofit. Are now they can they can be in the middle of an of an of an emergency when they've they've already learned these things and they've used them they've used ham radio they've used the inf, you know the whole scout portion of of, of infill and exfill and understanding land navigation they've used it for real they've had to set up water purification that if you didn't if it didn't work you know our reputation is done all of these things have to work for real and they come back and then it's a breeze because they've done it for real in a real world situation. Mm-hmm.
0: Very, very cool. Um, you want to remind every actually before we do this, um, I did want to give you the opportunity to point out, because I'm sure you agree with this, there are times, there are conditions, there are injuries where you should seek what you would call conventional med- medical help.
1: Absolutely. So higher definitive care is what we usually call that. And all the things that I teach are based upon the fact that you don't have that. So assume that the first thing you're going to do is seek higher definitive care. And I would never, and my disclaimer is always, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a licensed anything anymore. I have no licenses whatsoever. And I am not. Uh, treating, I'm not diagnosing, I'm not giving you therapy, anything like that. I am just uh, educating on what I believe is our constitutional right to use plant medicine or any kind of medicine that we choose as Americans and especially in a post-disaster situation
0: where there are not going to
1: be any doctors or nurses or higher definitive care.
0: But if you have a yield sign in your spleen, I'm sure you'd want somebody to take you to a trauma room. Absolutely. The one place that
1: we really excel in America more than any is with trauma and trauma surgery. We are we are the masters of that, and, and that is something I really appreciate greatly.
0: Yeah, definitely. So tell people again how they can uh, find out more about uh, your herbal course, your book, and, and all of your classes. So the, uh, the best, the easiest thing to do is just to go to theherbalmedic.com,
1: theherbalmedic.com, because I put a bunch of links up there to the book, to the, to the school, to the nonprofit, to my online course. But, you know, again, I have a full course that's basically two years long, but it is most much of it can be done online. And then the clinical portions, because you've got to come down and work in an herbal clinic, are done in five-day increments around the country. And we even do some in Mexico. We're going to do one in uh, Mexico next year. We're going to do one on an Indian reservation next year. So those are available for you to be able to come in and practice setting up a clinic. And we'd run it like a post-disaster. How would you really do this? If all you had was herbs and your neighborhood was, you know, all you had and people around you, how would you do that? So that's the hands-on portion. The rest is online for the herbal stuff now. Theherbalmedic.com is how you find all of that.
0: Well, Sam, again, I appreciate you being with us today, and I appreciate all your work and your service to our country at home and abroad. Thank you very
1: much, Jack. And as always, it was really a pleasure to, to be on here and to chat with you and uh, and your listeners.
0: All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Sam Kaufman helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess.